Good morning. Today is Wednesday, January 17, 2024. This is a regular meeting of the Building Inspection Commission. I would like to remind everyone to please mute yourself if you're not speaking. The first item on the agenda is roll call. Interim President Alexander Toot. Present. Commissioner Chavez. Present. Commissioner Newman. Present. Commissioner Shaddix. Present. Commissioner Summer. Present. And Commissioner Williams. Okay, we have a quorum, and uh, next is our land acknowledgement. Oh, no one, okay, just one moment. Well, we'll get everyone signed in. Would you get, go ahead. Sure. Thanks. I'll let you project the mic if they can't turn it on. Okay, uh, just one moment. I want to turn everyone mics on for a moment. Okay, go ahead. <clears throat> The Building Inspection Commission acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatushaloni, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatushaloni have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland, we wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatushaloni community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Thank you. Okay, uh, for members of the public um, that may be listening in, our uh, public comment call in number is 415 655 0001. The access code is 2660-060-4544. The WebEx webinar password is 0117. And to raise your hand for public comment on a specific agenda item, press star three when prompted by the meeting moderator. So um, next we have item two, President's opening remarks. Good morning, everybody. Um, this is our first regular meeting um, in January. And this next two months are gonna be characterized by several special meetings uh, that I wanted to bring to the public's uh, attention. Later today, we will be scheduling our two special budget meetings. Uh, last week, we had our fee study special meeting. Uh, and that will be, consume a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the time and the focus of this commission. So thank you to my fellow commissioners for hanging in and um, for your, in advance for your thoughtfulness. Uh, the only comment I wanna make today, we have a relatively short agenda, is to thank the director and the department for your continued and steadfastness uh, commitment to upholding the highest um, standard of ethics, and that we continue to walk this journey while um, you know bad practices in the past continue to be revealed. And I know that that's difficult for folks who have been around for that. Um, and it's difficult when it's people you know, but it's important. And um, we continue to, to move forward uh, with this important work. So um, that's all. That concludes my, my remarks for this morning. Thank you. Is there any public comment on the president's opening remark? Um, seeing none, the next item is item three. General public comment, the BIC will take public comment on matters within the commission's jurisdiction that are not part of this agenda. 
if you could um, project the PowerPoint. There it is. Okay. Oh, this is the wrong one. I'm sorry. This is the right one, thank you. I'm ready when you are. Okay, okay, go ahead. Yes. The DBI Expanded Compliance Control Program was created in 2021 as a way to ensure that contractors, design professionals, building owners, and their agents fully comply with a building code. ECC requires DBI to track significant violations and all parties associated with such violations. This is not happening. Um, one second. I'm having a little problem here. The DBI ECC program is ineffective and poorly managed. When I prepared this, four individuals should have been added to the ECC program list. Ginny Santos, Todd Van Nguyen, John Pollard, and Harold Howell. After I prepared this, Todd Van Nguyen was added. John Pollard has 20 of the 73 notices of violation on the department's ECC tracking list. He has 20. His structural engineer, who works for the structural engineering company he owns, has 11. So why aren't they on the ECC list? The other thing I'd like to mention is that 19 of the 73 NOVs don't have a contractor number. That's unacceptable. Individuals on, on the ECC program are listed uh, subject to these requirements. You have that slide. Housing code violations need to be included in the DBI ECC program. A recent article in the San Francisco Standard mentioned 11,000 DBI complaints are filed each year. The average number of days to close a complaint is 40 days. And 20% of the complaints are never closed. That's unacceptable. DBI is on pace for 3,000 NOVs in 2023. 67%, two-thirds of those, are housing complaints. And there are no housing complaints in this program. The BIC needs to conduct a formal review of the ECC program. DBI should be required to present a self-assessment of the program within the next 90 days at a future BIC meeting. Thank you very much. Is there any additional public comment um, in person or remotely? Oh, in person. I don't have the, you can try to adjust it. I'm not able to do that. Mm. 
Interim director versus acting director. Is not an interim position a lateral executive transfer? A, a qualified veteran permanent director from another department transfers to another department for temporary interim in, uh, coverage while a permanent director can be found and placed. Through almost two years of a nationwide search, why did the BIC not put a classified ad in the ICC who codifies the codes and adopts, uh, uh, and adopts the uh, codes? For I would assume it would be a, at a greatly uh, reduced cost. Did the national search disqualify candidates with a four-year college degree uh, to only focus on high school graduates? Does the interim uh, director have a right to revert back to their uh, permanent position? Why did President Angus McCarthy and Commission appoint college engineer graduate, uh, both acting and permanent, Tom Huey? A college degree was a minimum qualifications for the position. Who changed the minimum qualifications? The BIC and the Serv Civil Service Commission? Question mark? Okay. Uh, is there a big, is there a pay difference between acting and intermen? I thought acting only received 5% more salary. Google Transparent California Civil Service Commission, uh, 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 Civil Service Commission and Ethics Commission and the federal uh, government should investigate to ensure there were no improprietary, proprietaries if Director O'Riordan was uh, only acting uh, qualified and misclassified by the Building Inspection Commission as interim, then a refund by Director O'Riordan is due if there was an error in the compensation to refund the DBI coffers. It probably was an unfortunate oversight, but the big commission uh, led uh, by President Angus McCarthy. The Chief Building Inspector of official test is a test that uh, less than a day to take, and there are online uh, preparation classes that you can pay for. A lot less uh, uh, hours than a four-year college degree uh, previously required under the minimum qualifications. Uh, the, the total pay and benefits for Director Reardon is shown online in Google's Transparent California is almost 350000 per year. Um, Director O'Riordan was appointed interim in uh, March 18, 2020. This overlaps the timeline O'Riordan states in his deposition, from my recollection, available uh, online from um, Mission Local, Joe Ekanuba, Dennis Richards, uh, if you Google that, uh, that he, O'Riordan, talked to Bernie, his direct subordinate, to not go out of his district over a period, I believe, of four or five years, but appeared to take no corrective action or disciplinary action. O'Riordan years ago could have transferred Coran to a non-field position in the department with very little customer interaction to eliminate the million-dollar uh, investigation that seems to be uh, take many years, like the gas pipes encased in concrete, to include reference 147 Wood Street. Does O'Riordan hold himself at all responsible for the failing to take the prophylactic action against Koran? It appears to me that the media and the feds are the persons responsible for the unprecedented arrest and convictions, uh, not the department. It seems like the only time the department takes action is when they have to. When I was hired and O'Riordan was hired, both were interviewed by comments, three separate sir? independent local jurisdiction chiefs sir, you need to and directors. Now all the... Uh, uh, Hirings are taken from the inside. Thank you. Is there any remote public comment? Okay. Thanks. Seeing none, um, item four, discussion and possible action to follow the Board of Supervisors' remote public comment policy that eliminates remote public comment except when necessary to enable the participation of people with disabilities. Um, is there any public comment on... Uh, this item first. Any remotely? Okay, um, Commissioner. This is a similar item that we had at our prior meeting. 
that we have to take a action this meeting as well. I can just say what I said in the previous <laughs> meeting. I, I, I don't think we need to be closing uh, public comment online. I don't, it hasn't posed any challenges for us. I think we, especially because we meet on a weekday, it might pose better opportunity for more people to engage in our commission hearings. I think we should leave this open. Um, and that's my, those are my thoughts. Thank you, Commissioner Chavez. Any other comments? Um, no. Um, I concur, and as I shared in the last meeting, um, it knowing when you need an accommodation is not always something that's as easy and predictable as written in, as, as the statement might say, um, as someone who has my child here who has a disability that doesn't flare up very often, didn't expect to have him here with me today. Um, I know that sometimes it's last minute calls and you don't have the time to make the arrangement. So I think the most accessible thing to do is actually to keep this open um, as well as, and to maintain the current policy um, as well as uh, to, uh, to encourage participation as well. Okay, thank you. Um, if there are no other commissioner comments, is there a motion regarding this item? The, the motion, would, it, it seems to be, would be to continue with uh, remote public comment for the Building Inspection Commission. Yes, I'll make a motion to. I move that we continue uh, receiving remote public comment. Okay. Second. Okay, so there is a motion by Commissioner Williams and a second by Commissioner Chavez. Um, public comment on the motion. Um, seeing none, I'll do the roll call vote. Um, Interim President Alexander Toot. Yes. Commissioner Chavez. Yes. Commissioner Newman. Yes. Commissioner Shaddix. Yes. Commissioner Summer. Yes. And Commissioner Williams. Yes. Okay, that motion carries unanimously. Okay, um, next we have item five. Discussion and possible action regarding Board of Supervisors Ordinance, file number 23116, amending the fire code to require filing with the fire department records of five-year inspection of five-year sprinkler systems, mandate a filing fee to ensure that the cost of providing for such filings are recovered without producing revenue that is significantly more than such costs, and require a minimum five feet access from the public right-of-way to residential structures on newly divided sublots. Thank you, Sonia. Good morning, commissioners. I'm Carl Nasita, DBI's legislative affairs manager, here to present on this ordinance, which would amend the fire code to require five feet of access to residential buildings on newly subdivided lots. This ordinance is sponsored by Supervisor Connie Chan, and this morning we have Francis Shea from Supervisor Chan's office to share some comments with you. over to you as well. Uh, good morning, uh, President Alexander Toot, Commissioners, and Director Reardon. Uh, my name is Frances Shea, and I'm legislative aide to Supervisor Connie Chan. Uh, Supervisor Chan apologizes that she's not able to be here personally to attend your commission meeting um, and speak on this item. Um, however, with the later start time, um, she's unfortunately chairing budget committee right now, so can't be in two places at once. Um, I will be reading a letter uh, from her on this uh, that I think some of 
of the questions that were raised at the CAC, and uh, you should have all now received that letter, so I'll just read it into the record. Um, Dear commissioners, uh, in recent years, we have seen an increased demand and pressure to build more housing. We've seen the pressure from the state level and locally, uh, the incredible need for affordable units. This has led to both a sharp increase in market rate housing, as well as more creative solutions to create more units with the limited land we have, um, especially on the west side of town. This means more dense lots, and we, we need to make sure that these new units and that should be developments, sorry. Developments have to continue to be safe and have adequate access for our public safety teams. My legislation makes two main changes to the fire code in order to address two safety concerns in residential developments regarding equipment maintenance and access for safety personnel. I believe only the access issue is under the purview of this commission and is before you today for approval, but I also understand that the Code Advisory Committee had questions regarding the sprinkler inspections. I will attempt to address those questions quickly. The first thing this legislation does is to require that building owners file their records of five-year inspections of sprinkler, fire sprinkler systems and annual inspections of fire alarm and detection systems with the fire department. Currently, our existing fire code requires periodic inspections and a posting of these records. But there is no uniform, uniformity, uniformity sorry, in where these notices are posted. And with no filing requirement, we don't have a central or standard way of knowing whether buildings are in compliance. Sprinkler systems and alarm and de detection systems are our first and most basic line of defense in cases of fire. That's why these inspections exist in our fire code. This change is intended to improve compliance with this important part of our fire code and ensure that critical safety equipment is in good working order. I also included cost recovery for the department for this new filing because I'm mindful that when we create new processes or requirements for city agencies, we also must ensure the departments have the resources to implement the new legislation. The second main thing this legislation seeks to do, and which is before the commission for consideration today, is the requirement of five feet of access from the public right of way to residential structures on newly subdivided lots to ensure that in cases of fire, our firefighters have the access for themselves and their life-saving equipment. Uh, I have worked closely with the fire department to determine their operational needs um, and that require a minimum five feet of access to residential buildings on these subdivided lots. These two changes have been combined into one piece of legislation since they address the same policy concern, fire safety in our residential developments, both preventative measures as well as urgent safety access. I see these as both sides of the same coin when it comes to protecting our residents and our residential structures. As a city, we should realize that all our codes work best when they are taken as a whole instead of individual disconnected policies. I hope that this answers the CAC questions and this commission's questions, and I hope to have your support on this legislation. Thank you for your consideration today. Thank you. Thank you, Francis. Commissioners, I'll provide a bit more background on the ordinance and just want to note right now that we're also joined by the fire department's chief of operations, Darius Lettrup, and Fire Marshal Ken Coughlin. Fire Marshal Coughlin will come up in just a minute to provide some more information for you as well. 
But first, some background on the ordinance, which, as Francis said, contains two separate amendments, one requiring the filing of sprinkler and alarm inspections with the fire department, and then the, the other requiring five feet of access from the public right-of-way on newly subdivided lots. Today, I think that second piece should be your focus because the access requirement, though in the fire code, relates to lot split applications requiring ministerial review by DBI under Senate Bill 9 from 2021. And that is why the ordinance has been referred to you for a recommendation. Some background info on SB 9 or a refresher for those of you that remember. SB 9 requires ministerial approval for the subdivision of a parcel in a single family zone into two parcels. It facilitates the creation of housing units in the lot area typically used for one single family home. Key provisions in SB 9 uh, include that the local agency modify or eliminate development standards on a project by project basis if they would prevent or otherwise prevent uh, the construction of up to two un units of at least 800 square feet in size on both, both resulting lots. Uh, if you could go to slide three when you get a chance, Monique. So the fire department has determined that its operational needs require a minimum of five feet access to residential buildings on subdivided lots, and the existing fire code does not address the minimum access to the public right-of-way for residential structures on subdivided lots. So as I mentioned in the last slide, DBI reviews applications to subdivide a parcel in a single family zone into two parcels under SB 9, and an application made under SB 9 must be considered ministerially without discretionary review or a hearing, though DBI may apply objective standards to those applications, and the five-foot access would be one of those standards. I also just want to note that uh, that requirement would be subject to Administrative Bulletin 005, the procedures for approval of local equivalencies. Next slide. So again, there are two pieces in the ordinance, the first requiring the filing of inspection records for sprinkler systems every five years and the annual inspection of fire alarms and fire alarm and detection systems annually as well as the filing fee for the fire department. And those requirements will be enforced strictly by the fire department. So what is more relevant to DBI, again, is that second piece of the ordinance, which, as I previously mentioned, would require that when an existing lot is subdivided, that lot must have five feet of access from the public right-of-way to the new residential building for any emergency escape and rescue openings. Next slide. So the Code Advisory Committee met on January 10th. During their discussion, the Code Advisory was supportive of the five-foot access requirement, and then they did request some clarifications on that inspection piece that Francis just spoke to. So a reminder for today, your action would be to make a recommendation to the Board of Supervisors on this ordinance, whether a recommendation of approval or disapproval, and either way you could make any number of suggested modifications. So that concludes my presentation, and I'll invite Fire Marshal Ken Coughlin up.
Good morning, uh, President Alexander Toot, Commissioner Shaddix, Sumner, Williams, Newman, Chavez, and Director O'Riordan. Uh, my name is Ken Coffin. I'm your fire marshal in San Francisco Fire Department. I just want to give you some additional context of what, give you a visual more of what's actually happening, and I'll invite Chief of Operations, uh, Darius Lettrup, up to explain. He's the one in charge of fire ground operations, and that's what this is all about. Um, as we build additional housing, uh, somebody has to put it out. Something happens, right? Emergency will happen, and we want to be there. So. Uh, on the screen here, you show uh, what the legislation will allow, and this is from the Planning Department's website. A typical west side home, 100 by 20, you can build uh, two, up to two, two units in the back, as uh, Carl had mentioned. But if something was to happen in the back, how do we get back there? Um, what is enough distance for fire ground operations? And when you say fire ground operations, we talk about how do we get ladders, hose, people, and rescues to happen. So we didn't just come up with five feet out of the blue. We actually actually asked our members to go out there and try different ways of how they would access these spaces. Do you need 10 feet, 15 feet? You know, I, I live outside of the city in suburbia. You have anywhere between five and 15 feet for property for lot lines, right? This bill is really meant for almost every other jurisdiction except San Francisco. We have zero lot lines, our topography, our hills, everything about it makes it much harder for us to act. So we went out and we tested, and so this is an example of what a three-foot opening a tradesman to a unit in the back looks like. Is it enough space? What happens? So as you can see by these pictures, four firefighters carrying a 35-foot ladder, which is approximately a little over 100 pounds, carrying it to the back while somebody else is trying to drag a large three-inch charged, three-inch line and charging that at the same time, makes it very, very difficult for us to fight a fire. Uh, the new regulations allow up to a 20-foot tall building to be built in the back with four-foot um, setbacks from the property line fences. So you could have two units, 20 feet tall, 80 feet, 75 feet farther back off the street. And without this change, we may be limited to whatever three-foot access that we have to get back there. Now, three feet trying to carry that ladder in the normal manner wouldn't work. You see the other picture did show them carrying it on the side, which is a little harder, but you're not getting people back and forth. If somebody had to go back to the engine or back to the truck, it just wouldn't work. So that's why we came up with the five feet. Um, it's an objective standard. It works for San Francisco. Uh, we're not asking for anything extra. We're just wanting make it safe and make our, allow our people to work. So I, I put this in here, just this was a recent Fire 720 Masonic, and just to show you, if you look on the back, on the, on the right-hand side, there's a tradesman entrance on the picture on the left. You can see it on the, sorry, on the left, on the right picture, and the right, on the left-hand picture. That's all we had to work with to get to the back of this building, and you can see what the back of that building looked like. Just to let you know, on that fire, two people had to jump off the third story because there was no requirement for a back stair. For us to be able to get back there, treat them, put them on a gurney and take them to the front, if you have hose lines and people going through the front, how does it all work together? So uh, I just want to let you know that the, that three feet is not enough. We need five feet, and there are other means to get that um, for them. It doesn't close everything off, as we know right now, on the west side of town. If you walk it, people, you don't have a tradesman entrance anyway. You're going to have to create access to the rear lot when you do a split. When you do a split. We're just asking that 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 access is a minimum of five feet. Thank you. Uh, I'll invite Chief Fletcher, but I just want to explain kind of fire operations about how many people 
Most people would be surprised about how many people show up if you say, I have a smoke in my building or a fire in a building. That's kind of open. He can kind of explain how they operate. Good morning, President Alexander. Commissioners, Director, I'm Deputy Chief of Operations, Darius Lutcher of San Francisco Fire Department. Uh, fire Marshal did a great job of explaining our operational needs, um, and we did assist with uh, the presentation here today. Uh, I will correct one thing, that ladder actually weighs closer to 180 pounds. So it is difficult to carry it in a suitcase carrier, another modified version of the carry than, than demonstrated here. Um, the other thing is the size of the ladder is important to us because the example from Masonic shows um, once there is a fire in the, the rear unit, it can cause spread to other uh, buildings of dissimilar height and we will need the additional height. We'd, flexibility in operations is of uh, utmost importance, so 35-foot ladder would be the choice. As demonstrated by the Masonic Fire, um, with zero lot lines, the, the constant threat for the San Francisco Fire Department and the city of San Francisco is, is conflagration, that this fire was already impinging on its two uh, structures to the, to the north and the south of it and had the potential to spread greatly. Um, there is a legacy form of construction in the city of San Francisco. We often see carriage houses or other full-size Victorian structures behind Victorian structures in parts of the city where that was a common practice. These are very difficult fires for us to fight. So with the introduction of the Senate bill, um, that was our experience going into the conversation. And for the needs of operations, um, we, we talk about the resourcing, and that's why the chief asked me to speak today. So for any report of fire in a structure like this, you're going to receive four engine companies, two truck companies, a rescue squad. That's 30 firefighters and, and obviously seven pieces of equipment immediately. You'll have the overhead of three chiefs. You'll have an ambulance. You'll have an EMS supervisor. You'll have a public information officer. A lot of people. And then any incident of this size, Masonic um, went almost immediately to a three-alarm fire. That's a significant amount of personnel that are trying to move around the area of operation. Directly through this tradesman, it would be a number, a number of trips. And for the example of the Mastronic Street fire, that, that narrow tradesman did immediately, um, once companies had reached the rear of the building, become impinged by the fire and was not accessible for the extrication of the two people who were forced to jump from the rear. And we did have to use um, access through the fence line in the rear and the tradesmen in the, uh, the uh, adjacent address. So the ability for us to have that space is, is directly, directly operational and necessary for us. And if I have any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Thank you for your time. Do we go public comment? Okay, thank you. Is there a public comment on this item? Any in person? Any remotely? Okay, then uh, commissioner discussion. Okay, um, commissioner, is there any questions? Uh, commissioner Newman? Yeah, I have a question. So without this, a new development would still, or a new uh, ADU built, would still have to be reviewed by fire, correct? it would just be more discretionary. Sorry, uh, Commissioner uh, Newman, can you rephrase that question for me? Sure. So when someone is proposing to do a lot split and potentially build uh, a new ADU, they're still subject to 
DBI review and fire review, and this is just setting a minimum, correct? correct? Yes, they still will have to do the review. This allows planning from the beginning when that application is submitted to point to it and say, hey, there's a five-foot requirement. Um, but there's still, so it would sort of take a little bit of the discretion out of making the determination as to whether or not something. Correct. It helps with the ministerial, ministerial review of it. Five feet, is it there? Yes. Okay. So there's two different ways. We're doing a lot split where it's a flag lot. We have to get to the back, obviously. You're talking average in the, in the west side, 20 by 100 foot lots. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so how do we get to the back lot? They are going to have to provide some type of access. Now it's the size of the access is what we're working on or what we want to have codified because ministerially they can prove to it. I have five feet, fine. Mm -hmm. If it's going through an existing building, we're still requiring the five feet, but you can still build above. You're still building with a, a rated corridor that allows you to get there with a couple of sprinkler heads. So that area is safe so we can still get to the back. So yes, it still will be reviewed. It just makes it easier as something to point to is, hey, that's the minimum requirement. Um, is there, so this is for DBI staff, is there an administrative bulletin presently that helps uh, with interpretation of this? Uh, once this gets approved, yes. It's waiting to be able to put that bulletin to be able to explain all of that to, to everyone. Um, so if this gets passed by the board, the expectation is to release an informational bulletin that explains that requirement. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Shaddix. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the presentation. Um, I'm generally in favor of this um, moving forward. Um, having been in the, this town for about 40 something years, I've been front row and center to some fires, and uh, um, and I currently live in a newer building that has everything that you just mentioned, and I feel great knowing that our firefighters or rescues um, folks can get in our building several different ways. So I am in generally, I, I support this, and uh, I just wanted to uh, thank you all for what you guys do and all the women and men that uh, serve our city, putting out those fires and saving us. Thanks. Commissioner Chavez. Thanks, and thanks for the presentation today. I have to admit I'm um, of two minds. I think what you all have presented is incredibly important, and I would love to actually hear what the average like access to public um, right-of-way is, um, if you all have any idea of what that is. Do you know what the average access is? The most most single family dwellings have access to the front door. The difference is, is we to get to the rear lot, we don't go. Th we're not going to go through the front door to go back down the stairs or go to that lot. So there's plenty of access now with the creation of ADUs. Mm -hmm. You know, we have junior ADUs, which are attachment of the of the original um, dwelling, and then we have attached and detached ADUs in the rear. This is not affecting those. Okay. And those are those are smaller, so the access to those are usually we're allowing through the three-foot tradesman entrance. It's a lot smaller. Um, there's a maximum amount of um, I believe it's 1,600. Don't quote me on this. I think it's 1,600 square feet, and a detached ATU could be in the rear. So it's a it's a smaller, less of a hazard. The problem, not the problem, the concern with SB9 is you can put two 
dwelling units in the back of a house. It could be 20 feet tall, four feet from the property line. It's the amount of fire load that's back there that kind of makes us find the need to improve our access. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really what we're aiming for. So yes, there are different situations in what you're going to put. This is solely for a lot split. And on occasion, those lot splits might be with just the singular ADU. And Somebody could choose to split a lot and just decide to put an ADU on their on their back and lot. And they'd be subject to expanding the, their public. Yes, because that person could decide they want to add another unit later on. So at the time of making the arrangements to purchase or lot split or anything else like that, the map needs to show that there is a five-foot access because we don't know what's going to happen in 10 years or five years from now. But yeah. before all of those things are built, they are subject to fire review, correct? Yes, correct. We review all of those. Yeah. Um, some require, some don't. New housing don't require sprinklers. ADUs do not require sprinklers if the original unit does not have sprinklers, but if it does, you do. So they're going to be, you never know what you're going to get, really. Yeah. And to, sorry, to clarify just on that last point is if you looked at a review, a plan and you saw, okay, you only have a three foot entrance, but I need you to have a five feet entrance because of something particular about this lot under the current rules. Are you allowed to do that? Do a lot split? No, uh, under the current rules, if there's a lot split proposed, being proposed and the entryway is three feet and you think for whatever reason, based on your review that you need a five foot, do you have the discretion to mandate that under the current rules? No, that's, I think that's what we're aiming okay. for here so under you, our last In order but. to have a five, the you do not currently have the ability to mandate that someone co comes in with plans, expand their Correct. Their we're trying to work on this, so the minister review is very simple. Five feet is what you need. You're doing a lot split. It will be there in perpetuity forever, no matter what you plan on doing that rear lot or what, how the things change. Sure. So. I understand the ministerial place, but I'm still a little bit confused about whether or not you have the discretion to require a five-foot entrance in, a, in, in one, if I come in with a, a set of reviews for my lot split and it has a three foot width for the entrance and you, based on your review, think it needs to have five feet, do you have the discretionary now to say you need to make this five Under feet? SB9, we have a discretion to say four feet. Four we're feet. At, we're asking for one more foot. Okay, so the current is four feet. And per SB9, yes. Per Setbacks SB9. are allowed to be up to, you're allowed to go up to four feet. Okay. You could go less than that, but it says you allow a maximum of four feet. We are trying to expand at one foot so we have a little bit more room to work. I see. That was the clarity I was looking for. Thank you. Um, Commissioner Chavez, are you done? Um, I just wanted to, to finish up my comment really quickly. I, um, I believe I'm on the same page as my commissioners here, where I do think this is incredibly important because this is a very real risk. Um, and we also are facing a very real housing crisis where, you know, I, part of the intent of ADU law and SB9 law is to ease the increased development and density on lots. Um, and I do think in certain situations, like what we just were discussing, where there might be just one ADU that you can already have access to, that you don't need the increased um, access to for a lot split, asking the property owner to then increase that just for doing the lot split might be a deterrent to them. So I'm, I'm just saying that it, I think it makes sense for this to be a, a discretionary thing as we were asking, and I think that's why uh, Commissioner Alexander t t was asking if that's something that you could do upon review. Um, and when folks are going through their permitting processes, if they were to add a secondary unit after the lot split, if that's something we could add. So 
just trying to understand the different scenarios in which this could apply. My concern is discretionary review. What person do you say yes to and the next one you don't? Do you want to put the same rules to everybody? Hence the reason why SB9 comes out and says, do you meet the requirements? Yes, okay, it's allowed. Take the discretion out of it. And I think that's what we need to do because we don't know what's happening. Now, uh, another thing I noticed in SB9 being is on the west side, there are no trades, or majority don't have tradesmen leading to the rear lot. So something's going to have to be done anyway. So if you're going to have to build three-foot access, why not a two-foot access? Now, it also says that if you tear down that front building and you build it in the same footprint, it's considered an existing building. So majority to actually build those units in the back are going to have to do a serious modification, if not a total de demo and rebuild of the front unit to provide access. And we're only saying is, is when you build that access to us, can we get 24 more inches than the standard tradesman? I, I acknowledge that if you are on a zero lot line with no tradesman alley, that asking someone to do five feet instead of what's existing isn't a, a big ask because you have to do it regardless. But I think the concern here is where we have pre-existing buildings that have tradesman alleys, it's going to be a huge deterrent to say from, from splitting your lot um, if you have to create an additional two feet, right, uh, of expand your existing tradesman alley. That is just, you know, you're going to have to cut into your building, you're going to, or you're going to have to do something that is a huge building alteration. Um, and so I, it's, I, I'm also of two minds. I, I recognize the safety concerns. Um, San Francisco, you're right, this law was not written for a place like San Francisco where we have zero lot lines and we have all of these things. Um, but I, I think that's why we should leave it to a more discretionary review. Um. No. Sure. Uh, well, uh, I <clears throat> first, excellent presentation uh, by you uh, and the fire department in general. And from what I've heard, uh, I think an objective standard is wise and uh, for me as a commissioner sitting on this commission and hearing uh, the statements from the fire department I am of the mind that if the fire department is saying it needs to be five feet so we can address uh, uh, you know uh, fire the fire concerns unique to San Francisco and uh, be able to uh, protect the public health and safety I think that uh, I would be in support of that and I, I haven't uh, Heard much otherwise, and with the dis discretionary review, I, I, to me, like uh, Fire Marshal mentioned, um, you know, how do you establish, you know, the, it, there's issues and problems with uh, what is the scope of discretion there, and how to uh, how to manage that and enforce that. So, uh, I uh, great presentation, and I, I'm uh, I'm in favor of it. But uh, uh, the reason why I uh, pinged in here was to address the other portion of the legislation and to my understanding the code uh, advisory committee recommended splitting the legislation and I was uh, wondering if um, Supervisor Chan's um, uh, I'm sorry I didn't get I didn't write the name down fast enough so Francis, uh, Francis. Francis. Fra oh yeah Francis uh, if you could uh, comment on why uh, the code advisory committee's uh, position that it shouldn't be split or that it should be split why these two uh, sort of distinct 
uh, matters uh, should be addressed in the same legislation. Um, thank you very much for the question, uh, Commissioner. As um, uh, Supervisor Chan's uh, letter pointed out, if we're going to touch the fire code and we're especially addressing um, you know, a problem that we're seeing, which is uh, access to these like fires in our more dense neighborhoods where um, and in our new buildings and how we're developing it, then we should look at it as a whole. You know, they're both trying to address the two parts of fire safety. One is, you know, of course, access when you have a fire and making sure that you can get there. But prior to that, it's also thinking about making sure that all of our preventative measures um, are, are part of that too. And, you know, if we're going to tuck, it, it's, you know, really, um, as a, a policymaker, her choice is that if we're going to touch the fire code, if we know we want to do two separate things, we should do it once rather than do it two or three or four times. Um, you know, this actually could probably be broken up into three pieces of legislation, but it's all addressing the fire code and it's all trying to address the same thing from a policy perspective, which is fire safety, right? And sprinkler systems, detect alarm detection systems, and, you know, access for our safety personnel are all part of that safety, you know, policy concern. So to, in her perspective, you know, let's do it in one legislation. Um, we can have the fire department come out and talk about it once. We can have, like, the same people come and talk about it once instead of going through all these different um, pieces of legislation. I mean, as somebody who sits at the Board of Supervisors and, you know, has to review hundreds and hundreds of pieces of legislation every day, any time when you can combine things and actually they kind of make sense to combine, that's when, we, you know, she chooses to do it. Other supervisors may choose to do it differently. This is just the choice she's made. Just one point on uh, the requirements under SB 9. It actually prohibits discretionary review. So okay. the departments have to use objective standards. And so the five foot access would be the objective standard. Uh, for these application reviews. But the current okay. law right. says four. four feet, correct? I would have to rely on Fire Marshal Coughlin's expertise for that, but that's my understanding. Yes. They have to move in. That's true. That is true. The current SB 9 does say four feet. So it's a mandate for four? You can, the local jurisdiction can require up to four feet at this particular time. So right now we would be saying we would ask planning and building and ourselves wouldn't accept anything less than four feet. Okay, that's the current. That's the current right now. That's we're the current asking, law. We're asking for 12 more inches. Yeah. Okay. So so can I just repeat this so I can get it right in my head? So the average tradesman enter entrance is three feet. Correct. Well, that's typically the doorway. Then you got Typical. gas meters in there. Now you're down to two feet at some point. So. Right. So it's three. So under. So it looks like. If the current is four, they're expanding anyways, and you're asking for an additional feet, five, yes. 12 inches. Um, and Carl did bring up a great point. There is no discretionary review with this that, objective that, standard. That's helpful. The, the, the point about discretionary review is helpful for me. The, what's difficult about the building and these building codes is they, once it's built, it gets grandfathered in. And so we're making a decision now about what does fire safety look like for the next 50 to 100 years in these buildings who aren't built yet. And you know, as things get built, we don't have the ability to go back and say, oh, we should have passed this. And so um, if, 
it's looking like we're going from zero line or a three line, we're expanding anyways, um, and we don't have a discretionary view. Um, I'm in a position where I'm moving to support this legislation, but I'd like to hear from my other commissioner or my other commissioners. Yeah. I, can I just touch on one other thing, uh, Commissioner Williams had mentioned regarding that first part. Um, the only difference on when it comes to the certificates or the, the submitting of the um, five-year certificates is our current code just says that people still have to get it, have, still have to have the, their system serviced. The only difference is, is they hold on to certificates unless we go there and ask them to see it because we think they didn't do it. The only difference is it's ensuring we're finding a process for people to submit those, and when people don't, now we can be proactive and find those people and remind them that it needs to be serviced. That's the only difference. The reason there's a fee associated with it, because obviously there's people power that have to go behind it, because definitely we're going to be finding people that have not serviced it. Somebody has to go out there and do the paperwork and the interaction with the, with the building owner to ensure that the system has been serviced. That's the only difference is, is we're asking them to send it in to us, and we have to have a tracking system and be able to react to those not being done. That's the only reason that's in there. It's just a different way we're holding the certificates. Thanks. I, I really am leaning towards um, using the state mandate. I think we're, wherever we're limiting, we're making it more difficult to create more housing. And the state number, I'm sure, was researched and arrived at for good reason, and I understand that San Francisco is a difficult place and maybe I have a tradesman alley that meets that requirement and that one foot more is gonna stop me from doing the work. Um, if I have a zero lot line and I have to do the work anyway, you know, I, I would hope <laughs> um, that you would, you know, consider widening, um, but, and I understand that it makes the job harder, but I think we have to balance existing conditions with future conditions, with the very real-world problem of creating more affordable, more more housing in the city. Period. Um, we don't have enough of it, and anything that's going to further limit that, and especially if it's pushing against a state law that was meant to increase building housing, um, I I tend to uh, oppose. Um, from what I understand, SB9 says that uh, the setbacks and the access can may be up to four feet. So we would have to pass some sort of ordinance or uh, to say that that's what the city has decided is required, right? Does anyone? Rob? My understanding is that if that's what the state law allows we would not have to pass okay. an ordinance to go beyond that we would which is why this is before Perfect. you yeah. um then i'm with well i don't especially after listening to you all today I, I don't really think that this is like a one size fits all solution it does sound like a pretty case-by-case -case basis and i understand that we can't do a discretionary um process um and with all that said, I, I am um, with Commissioner Newman on this. I do think that we should defer to the state. Uh, we have a very real housing crisis. I don't think I have to tell anyone in this room that. And I think and I, it, the challenge definitely is that we have to balance what we're building for the future and, and what we have in existence right now. 
Um, and I think that the, the best thing we can do is really follow what state law is saying. Uh, Deputy City Attorney Rob Kaplan, I, I'm, if it aids the commission in this, I think the key with dealing with SB9 and the need for objective standards is to determine the state at which, or determine the conditions at which the city cannot say no or must say yes. And so setting this would say, if you meet this standard, it flies through. That's the streamlining condition. Um, if it's no longer SB9 compliant because it does not have that, the city would have discretion at that point to look at a case-by-case -case basis, potentially. Um, the other issue here is if you have a four-foot setback, that wouldn't include the sprinkler requirement. So if you just go with the state mandate, I don't believe the state mandate requires sprinklers for that four-foot access way if it's in a tradesman. So you would also lose that requirement. So there could be something much more nuanced that says if you don't meet the four-foot requirement, then you have to do the sprinkler. If you are starting with a zero-lot line, then you have to... Uh, Deputy City Attorney Rob Kaplan, there, you, it would be impossible to set out all the conditions at which there's an objective standard. Right. But I think the, at least the way I would look at this right now is where do you want to set it where the city, we'd say, if you come in, you meet this, it flies through. Mm -hmm. That's really the goal of, of dealing with SB9 is finding the, this is the discretionary point, or this is the point at which we no longer have to look at anything else other than you've met these standards. But can you address that to current conditions so if you are you 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 would not be able to set the baseline at current conditions that change with each project that would be discretionary okay. so you need to set an objective minimum standard that okay. at that or objective standard at which if you meet it we don't have to look at case-by-case -case studies you've met that okay. um, condition for this property and so a property owner knows when they come in I'm going to design it this way and then I'll meet it. Not, I'm going to design it to try and keep the current tradesman in and see if I can get a discretionary approval or something okay. less. Uh, sorry to interrupt, Commissioners. Um, we did uh, found out that there is a, was an issue with the remote public comment. So there are a couple of people that are on the line that would like uh, to add public comment. Okay, so okay, if you can try to. Oh, okay. Be, uh, before we do that, uh, did the fire marshal want to make a comment uh, regarding the comment that Deputy City Attorney Kaplan just made? I just wanted, I wanted to concur with uh, Deputy City Attorney on this. Um, the discretionary versus the non-discretionary, non I mean, he, he hit it right on the nail there. Um, I'm just going to leave it at that. I kind of lost my, my train of thought, but I thought it was very perfect about how you stated that, Rob. Thanks. I would say, sorry, and Deputy City Attorney Rob Kaplan, to be clear, um, the state says set these objective standards after which you can't say no to a project. So this standard, we, the, those projects would move through, I believe, and that's why I wanted to make sure I was correct, we would still have discretion in slight deviances from that possibly. We have a local equivalency process, so those would be the areas where we would look to see if there are other things that would be just as safe, and the fire and DVI could look into those. But under the state law, we can't do that for a project that meets the minimum standard. So if a project comes in, it's four feet, but it's not sprinklered, it has obstructions, we otherwise do not think it's safe. If it's four feet, state law would say you have to green light it. We can't look at it as a case by case and ask for other protections that might uh, make the spot safer for 
subdividing the lot. So to clarify, if we if this legislation were in effect, someone who comes in and says, "Here's my five foot entrance," we can't say no. But if they they come in with a four foot entrance, there that the department would have discretion in order to. Uh, WCD Attorney Rob Capilla from a. SB9 perspective, it no longer meets an objective standard, so it's no longer a ministerial project. So it doesn't, then there could be discretion and there could be factors that the fire department and DBI could weigh as to whether or not this has an equivalent safety factor. But they're not allowed to look at those factors because it's a ministerial review if it meets the minimum five foot standard. So we're not, so this legislation is not saying there must be a five foot, for any lot split, there must be a five foot with just for those who apply who trigger the sb9 it it would set a five-foot standard for subdividing a lot we have a process for providing a local code equivalency that you could go below the minimum standard potentially it is a case-by-case standard we do it with other types of building projects now where you have to find some sort of way to make an equivalent and i'm not saying that would always exist or ever exist but this determines the threshold at which we no longer have to do all these case-by-case studies. If you come and you meet the standard, those are the ones that fly by without further review. It slows the process. Understood significantly. But if somebody were to come in today with a three-foot tradesman entrance, and our standard is four, and the state standard is four, which we've as our, is, also, that is also our standard, so that would also it, uh, WCD Attorney Rob Kepler, I believe we would say it does not meet the current objective standards, so it's no longer a SB9 project. So any tradesman inter- entrance does not meet the SB9 standard? I, I wouldn't know in every case if they all meet that standard. So, okay, if, any, any three-foot entrance or uh, any three-foot tradesman entrance would not meet the current SB9 standard? Would not meet our current SB. We, we enforce a four-feet uh, or greater. Okay. It wouldn't meet ministerial means to be approved, but the f- that you could under you could make tweaks to make it safer under our code because our we don't match much of the rest of the state, so we have this special discretionary piece where we can say, okay, and let me know if I'm like not understanding this correctly. We can say. You can, but you have to have a sprinkler system because you don't have enough egress or to counterbalance or. Uh, yeah, Deputy City Attorney Rob Capel, I, I want to distinguish between SB9, which is mm-hmm. this requirement for. Right. The, the, if you meet these things, it's sort of like a checklist. If you can check yes on all right. these boxes, You're, that's it. There's yep. no other review that has to come in. Mm-hmm. Generally, most projects, all building permits across the city have been discretionary, but SB9 says take these out of your discretionary bucket if it meets all these checkboxes. So this is trying to create a binary checkbox where you can say it meets this or it doesn't. If you are not able to check that discretionary box, then you would have to go in and ask for a discretion, ask for the discretion of the departments to determine if there's a safe way to meet it without meeting that checkbox. You're no longer SB9. You're not subject to the timelines or the uh, ministerial review. Right, and so we're, but there are discretionary lines right now set by the state and we're, asking to make them more stringent. Yeah, uh, WC, that's what we do. Our our building code and our fire code can go above the state mandates if we have unique characteristics and you have to make those findings when you have an ordinance. I believe this ordinance uh, references them. Okay. 
triggered, triggered what my trade of thought was is yes, we know it is the AB005 over the Building Department's Administrator Bulletin, and that's an equivalency. So they do that for lots of different projects. If you don't meet the letter of the code, is what are you going to give us that makes it just as safe, right? What could work for us? Both the Building Department, the Fire Department get together and agree that this is equivalent. So if you came in with four feet, yes, they would not be the SP9. It would not get a ministerial stamp. Instead, it would go through the normal process to say, hey, I, I'm doing this extra. It's not a typical tradesman. It's extra safe. I, I'm not sure what this would be included. But they may come forward and ask to do the four feet. The difference is, is they don't get the immediate stamp. Yes, move on to the next thing. This is now you're in the, the AB005 process of plan check meetings, discussion with building official, the fire official, to see if it meets the requirements based on what we know and how we operate here in San Francisco. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. Uh, President, is it okay to do the public comment now? Okay. So uh, we are uh, going to, I guess, reopen the public comment. Um, there was a caller, the 925 prefix. We are about to unmute you now. Say, ca caller, um, would you like to speak now? Yeah, thank you very much. Um, Good, still good morning, Commissioners. Corey Smith on behalf of the Housing Action Coalition. Uh, thank you for, for giving the opportunity here. Um, our San Francisco organizer uh, had sent in a coalition letter uh, that we had had uh, put together with a couple of other organizations related to this ordinance and a really kind of interesting conversation that sort of developed on, on the fly here related to how SB9 works um, and what the requirements are and, and four feet and five feet. Um, pieces. A couple of just sort of high-level comments on it, and this was a little bit discussed. San Francisco does have unique lots that are generally relatively narrow, um, and while uh, certainly fire safety is, is top of mind, housing is as well, and we need to figure out a way to have these two things work together. And to my knowledge, nobody within kind of the design and build community was, was consulted when this legislation was drafted. Um, and so we are fearful of some of the unintended consequences when it comes to reducing potential housing production as it relates to this ordinance. Um, and so really feel like we, we can get a middle ground there and, and would be open to participating and trying to be productive and, and getting something across the finish line that accomplishes the shared goals of fire safety and, and building more housing. And then there's the overall kind of intersection of state law and how it impacts locally. I've got SB9 in front of me, and while we did not spend a ton of time on it, um, it, it does relatively, as I understand it, clearly say that the, the setbacks or, or the side yard um, access points up to four feet. And so I just really want to make sure of, of how we are interacting with state law so we don't, uh, again, have an unintended consequence and get in trouble with the state and have our local laws contradicting what is required by the state itself. And I thought the city attorney did a great job of sort of explaining how all of that works, but just kind of wanting to re-flag that for everybody as well. And then a last point, this is again an area where I hope we can be helpful. This similar conversation is going in a bunch of different cities. And so looking at other cities and seeing what some of the other best practices are could be potentially helpful in trying to find that um, you know, fire safety, housing production sort of middle lane that we're all trying to achieve. Um, thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Okay. Thank you, caller. And uh, Ms. Calhoun, we are going to unmute you now. Um, if you could try to unmute yourself. Oh, there we go. Great. 
Thanks, everyone. Hi, my name is Serena Calhoun. I'm a local architect. I've been practicing for 22 years uh, in the Bay Area. I'm very opposed to this legislation. Um, the most recent ordinance, uh, the constraints reduction, allows for 20-foot-wide subdivisions now in the city, and this legislation requires a five-foot uh, setback open to the sky as it's currently currently written. It's not a tradesman alley. So that's effectively going to make these lots unbuildable with only 15 feet of uh, a buildable area, buildable width. Um, in addition, you know, it doesn't say anything about SB9. This legislation is not written in a response to SB9. It's for every subdivision in the city. So I have a project right now with the 100-foot lot we're subdividing into 25-foot sections with the uh, you know, primary dwelling ADU and JADU. Um, that would make these only 20 feet wide in every case, which would make them almost, again, unbuildable. Uh, this is going to have a significant uh, impact on the ability to create housing in our city. And it's, it concerns me as an architect that our community was not even um, approached to discuss this. This is, was introduced only in November, and it's already moving through the BIC. You know, but the, this is a big deal. The, the six section that the fire department um, cited, that fire at 720 Masonic, that's an old housing project with no second exit and a very narrow tradesman alley with electric and gas meters in it. That is not the case of a subdivided lot that's got new construction. New construction is required to be sprinklered. It has to meet significant fire safety standards that were not in place when our original housing stock was built. So I, I don't see this as an apples to apples, um, you know, straight safety concern. I see it as a, an overreach in making a major change to the, Cal to the building code that has, you know, over 100 years of tested and measurable data. So I think this really requires a lot more study, a lot more people from the community, and I, I'm in strong opposition to, to seeing this be approved today by the BIC. Thanks so much. Um, thank you. I believe there's no, there's no further, there's no other hands raised, so that uh, concludes the public comment. So, uh, back to you, uh, President, President Alexander Toot. Um, thank you. Is there... So I, I have a question about the legislation. Um, I think this is either, either to um, Francis Shea or to um, the, the uh, DBI and the city attorney. So I'm looking at the requirement uh, on page five of the legislation, and it says new residential buildings on all subdivided lots shall have a minimum five foot with clear access pathway open to the sky from the public right of way. And then that's why I'm seeing open to the sky. And then in the second, it says for lots with existing buildings constructed across the entire width of the lot, the front of the, of the lot, new residential buildings at the rear shall have an access corridor with a minimum of five foot height, clear access pathway from public right of way. And the new residential building, blah, blah, blah. The minimum width access corridor shall be equipped with fire sprinkler. So can you address this question about when is it required to be open to the sky if there's an existing trades? Min op, um, alley, but so therefore it does not appear to go across. You know, can you tell me when does it require to be open to the sky and when is it not required to be open to the sky? So this fire code amendment would allow for both. If the current building is constructed across the entire width, there would have to be a tradesman corridor five foot wide for ministerial approval under SB9. If the building is not, 
built across the entire front of the lot and that there was room for this five foot wide access to the public right of way open to the sky. Um, so it would allow for both. Okay, so it allows for both. So it doesn't require that somebody who has a corridor existing then cut off a bunch of their building in order to have an open to the sky corridor. That's not the requirement in this Correct. legislation. Correct, it does require that that uh, corridor be sprinklered, um, but right. not necessarily open to the sky. And why did right. I understand the widening part? I wanted to clarify the opening in the sky because that part had not been discussed, and I wanted to clarify my understanding. Um, is there any other discussion? Is there a motion? Yeah, I, uh, well, I have some discussion. So, for mm -hmm. the commissioners expressing uh, opposition, uh, I, I'm just looking to be enlightened because I'm, I've heard a presentation from the fire department and fire marshal saying this is the bare minimum that they need to be able to address uh, fire concerns in uh, the back of these lots. Uh, and your, uh, the opposition is saying, well, the state says it's four feet. And so to be clear, are, are you contending that the fire marshal is incorrect, that they don't need that bare minimum five feet, or is it, is it something else? Or if, uh, if I misstated uh, the fire department, okay, then, then I'll leave it. Anybody who, any of the other commissioners who want to uh, present their position if, or address that concern, because that's my... So that, condition, that yeah. condition does not exist throughout the city of San Francisco, and so we are fighting fires every day that do not meet those conditions. I understand that ideally that would be the condition, but to me it's a balance of safe this like safety concern which is very real and i recognize that with what further restricting the law would do to the creation of additional housing stock in our city and i think that it would negatively impact our ability to effectively use the state law that has been passed so that is that is my stance I also think there's a difference on like when you're building a new building, if you can build a five foot access way for better fire department access, then you should you should do something like that. Well, a lot of the buildings in San Francisco right now don't have like Commissioner Newman was saying, just don't meet those standards. Um, I do think that obviously poses some level of risk and, you know, asking folks to cut off feet of their building when maybe three feet is four feet is sufficient. Um, seems like a very costly, like huge barrier to state law. That okay, so I, but so uh, my position here is the fire marshal and the fire department is saying it's not sufficient, and you're you're disagreeing with that. Is that my is? I don't want to mischaracterize what anybody's saying, uh, but if or and I don't want to mischaracterize what the fire department's reported here. I'm I want to be informed, uh, so I, I know my position here right. so they still have the discretion if the four feet requirement stated by the law is not met to have additional requirements in order to create a safe condition it still requires sign off from the fire department if you're not meeting that state standard so that is the condition with many of the existing buildings within the city of san francisco but rather than them just being pushed out like they would 
being saying, oh, you don't meet the standard, right? Um, it, it leaves a little more space for, I believe, for projects to be able to go through ministerial review rather than discretionary review, right? If we're asking for that much more. So if the standard tradesman alley in San Francisco is three feet, it's still not meeting that four foot requirement. It still goes into that discretionary review pile, right? Where it's like, you do not meet the ministerial requirement. So in order to potentially approve your project, you have, are subject to this discretionary review process, right? And so that's how I see it. Is like we're pushing, we're making it, we're making it the barrier that much higher. Before you go into that, and it, it's easier than to say no. Well, easier to say no under which standard? Under the new object or what the proposed five-foot objective standard, yeah, or I, the exi the status quo four-foot objective standard? I I think we're asking for a more stringent stringent requirement which what that does is that pushes more people into that discretionary category or more potential housing projects into that discretionary category and I, I, I do think the sprinkler piece should be broken away because I do support that piece of the legislation um, Well, I, I suppose I can, I, I will just <laughs> continue to opine here. But, uh, you know, an issue, one reason why um, this objective versus discretionary I think is important, this, me a commissioner on the Building Inspection Commission is just uh, my observations, Whether where there is discretion involved in these planning and permitting processes, it is uh, more susceptible to abuse and uh, that is something that is uh, topical, prescient, I, I think, for all of us on this commission. So uh, I, I guess this isn't really an uh, opinion, but more of a comment on my, on my part for why I think it, an objective standard more than the, dis the discretionary standard is what I would be in favor of. But and an objective standard does exist. It just exists in a less stringent way from the state. Yeah, it's and a lower standard that this fire department in this jurisdiction says is not sufficient for their needs, and and that's it. Okay. So is there going to be a motion, or what are <laughs> what are we doing? Zan. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to make a motion that we approve um, Ordinance 23116 as is. Is there a second? A second. Okay. There is a motion and a second to approve the legislation. I'll do a roll call vote on the motion. Um, interim President Alexander Toot. Yes. Commissioner Chavez? No. Commissioner Newman? No. Commissioner Shaddix? Yes. Commissioner Summer? Yes. Commissioner Williams? Yes. Okay, then the motion carries five to two. I'm sorry, four to two. 
motion 42. Okay, thank you. Okay, um, next, then we have item six, director's report. Um, 6A, director's update. Thank you, Interim President Alexander Toot and members of the Building Inspection Commission. Uh, I'm Patrick O'Reardon, the Director of the Department of Building Inspection. As the new year is getting underway, I want to share some of the progress we made in 2023 and highlight a few of the improvements we made to better serve our customers and the city overall. In 2023, we created a new online portal for many solar permits using Solar App Plus. And just last week learned that we received a $100,000 state grant to offset our implementation costs. Uh, we also built online tools so customers can submit records requests online and receive copies of plans electronically. DBI relocated the information counter from the first floor lobby to the permit center on the second floor, adjacent to the help desk and uh, over-the-counter permit application review counter. Bringing all of our frontline operations into the same area created a more cohesive and sensible layout for over-the-counter permit applicants and for our staff. As we discussed in November 2023, uh, uh, was also a year in which we saw some of our earlier efforts to improve the permitting process, such as pre-plan check and dynamic staffing assignments begin to really produce results. Compared to January, our October permit assignment times were 33% faster, and we conducted the first plan review at, at the building station 43% faster. That's a full three weeks faster in October versus January. A terrific overall gain in just 10 months. In May, we offered a comprehensive proposal to support the Mayor's Housing for All directive, including teaming up with our city partners at the end of the year to implement a new 100% digital in-house review process using concurrent electronic plan review to provide better, uh, faster service at less cost to the applicants. We're continuing to improve on this new process, and just last week, added a new page uh, of in-house review forms and applications portals to make it easier for customers to find the documents and submission pages needed to apply for a building permit. And the results review function in the permit tracking system that we introduced in July substantially improves the transparency of our, of our reviews and applicant revision time and activity, including documenting, the number and nature of uh, project rechecks. DBI responded to unexpected challenges by being thoughtful and forward-thinking. After a series of high-rise window uh, uh, breaks in heavy winds, uh, we commissioned a study that, revi that revised the facade ordinance to provide additional guidance and require additional inspections to prevent this from happening again. When anonymous complaints targeted small businesses, we streamlined the process to legalize commercial awnings without unduly penalizing the proprietors. 
2023, DBI also played a critical role in helping to get the city back on track. Uh, we lead the way on code changes and, and clear, soon-to-be-published guidelines supporting commercial-to-residential com uh, conversions and conducted joint inspections to help uh, fill vacant downtown buildings with pop-up businesses. There's no question that we uh, have more work to do, but I'm tremendously proud of our staff and for what we've already achieved, and I'm grateful to you, commissioners, for the support and encouragement you've given to all of us throughout the year. And I do want to give a special shout out to our administrative staff who worked very hard through the holiday period uh, to facilitate being ready for administrative bulletin 1114. Um, and uh, I can promise there's much more to come this year. And this concludes my director's report. Okay, thank you. Our next item is 6B, update on major projects. Good morning again, Commissioners. The following slides are intended to highlight the volume and valuation of projects costing $5 million or more that have been filed, issued, or completed in the past month. We will profile a few projects that bring especially high value in terms of their contribution to housing and community assets. In December 2023, six permit applications with an estimated construction value of $5 million or more were filed with the department. Five of those permits were for a new SFPUC community distribution division headquartered at 2000 Marine Street. And those were collectively valued at 149 million. Another was for a new 13-story 179 uh, unit mixed uh, use building at 1515 Street. That one was valued at 40 million. And we have the next slide, please. Uh, last month, we issued two high-value permits with a total valuation of 52.5 million. Uh, one was for a new eight-story, 92-unit affordable housing building on state-owned land at 850 Turk Street. Uh, that was valued at 39 million. Another was for a new four-story school building at La Scuola International School at 3270 18th Street. Uh, that was valued at 13.5 million. And uh, lastly, we finaled four, four high value permits. Two were for the construction of a new six story, 105 unit uh, affordable apartment building on Treasure Island uh, at One Avenue of the Palms, which has been readdressed to 55 Kravath Street. Uh, these two permits were for the construction of the new apartment building and repair of uh, major water damage and were collectively valued at $50 million. Another was for uh, exterior renovations of an apartment building at 2211 Stockton, which was valued at $10 million. Thank you. Thank you. Um, our next item is item six, update on proposed or recently enacted state or local legislation. Hello again, Interim President Alexander Toot and Commissioners. I'm Carl Nasita, Legislative Affairs Manager for DBI. My legislative update will be brief since the Board of Supervisors was on recess since your last meeting until last week. 
On slide number two, the ordinance making technical edits to the findings supporting our local building code amendments passed its first reading at the Board of Supervisors last week, and it will have its second reading at the board's meeting next Tuesday. Second, Board President Aaron Peskin's ordinance amending the existing building code to require buildings with 15 or more stories to conduct and submit supplemental inspections for windows and glazing systems will be heard by the board for its first reading at its meeting next week. And just to update you, President Peskin did accept the amendments that you recommended at your last meeting, so thanks for your thoughtful consideration of that ordinance. Next slide. Another ordinance that you considered at your last meeting was the ordinance to temporary, temporarily suspend the vacant commercial storefront registration and fee. After discussions with DBI staff, the mayor's office requested a continuation of this ordinance to a date to be determined. And if it remains a priority, it will be contemplated as part of a broader, broader budget planning process because of the fiscal impact that it would have on DBI. Uh, you considered the other ordinance on this slide, amending the fire code earlier in the meeting. Next slide. Two ordinances that you considered in your October meeting are still pending further amendments. The ordinance to clarify the approval process for accessory dwelling units and the ordinance to extend the deadlines for the accessible business entrance program. I will keep you updated on those. Next slide. Just want you to be aware of an ordinance amending the housing code to authorize occupants of residential dwelling units to sue to enforce the prohibi prohibition on substandard housing conditions. That ordinance has been referred to the Land Use Committee for a public hearing. And as Director O'Riordan mentioned, a resolution authorizing DBI to accept and expend $100,000 from the California Energy Commission for the costs associated with the adoption of Solar App Plus, an automated permitting platform for residential solar installations, was recommended for approval by the Board's Budget and Finance Committee and will be considered by the full Board for approval next week. Next slide. A quick note on hearings that DBI has been asked to participate in. A hearing regarding the timeline for lead and asbestos remediation at the Richmond Senior Center on Gary Boulevard and the consequences of extensive closure of parts of the senior center on its operations and service delivery. We've been asked to participate in that hearing with HS Human Services Agency. Uh, that one's been scheduled for the Public Safety and Neighborhood Services Committee next Thursday. And a hearing to discuss San Francisco's efforts to prepare for, respond to, and recover from a large earthquake, including a status update on the Soft Story Retrofit Program will be held by the Land Use and Transportation Committee in the near future, not on January 22nd, as the slide says. And next slide, just a reminder on the legislative deadlines coming up in Sacramento. On January 19th, legislators have, the, have to submit bill requests to the Office of Legislative Council. January 31st is the last day for each house to pass bills introduced in that house last year and February 16th is the last day for bills to be introduced, so I expect at your last meeting we'll have some state legislation to discuss. Thank you. Thank you. Our next item is 6D, update on inspection services. Um, good afternoon, commissioners. Matthew Green representing, or acting deputy director representing inspection services. Um, first slide, please. 
Um, in, De in December of 2023, the Building Electrical and Plumbing Divisions conducted 9,377 inspections. 90% of those inspections were conducted within two business days of the date requested by the customer, barely meeting our target of 90%. Um, next slide. In the same month, our housing inspection services conducted 802 inspections, with 84 of them being routine inspections of multifamily housing. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, the building, electrical, and plumbing divisions received 327 complaints and responded to 100% of them within three business days, exceeding their target of 85%. Additionally, our code enforcement division sent 44 cases onto director's hearing. Uh, next slide. Uh, lastly, our housing inspection services received 305 non-life hazard complaints and responded to 88% of them within three business days. For life hazard and heat complaints, housing received 45 complaints and responded to 82% of them within one business day. Housing inspection services also abated 336 cases with a notice of violation and sent 31 cases on to director's hearing. Um, that concludes my presentation, but I'm free for any questions you may have. No. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Um, next, we have item 6E, update on DBI's finances. Good morning, commissioners. Deputy Director of Administration, Alex Koskinen. First slide, please. So this is the monthly regular financial update. 50% of the year has elapsed. To date, DBI has collected 48% of its budgeted charge for services revenue. And for the first time this year, we've done an analysis to try to determine where we think we'll end the year, where we think our revenues will come in, and where we think our expenditures will land. And we have determined that based on the year so far, we project collecting approximately $2.83 million, um, having, having a revenue shortfall. I'm still hopeful that revenue will pick up and that the past few winter months are slower than normal and we can expect to pick things up. But at this point, with what we know so far, it seems prudent to project out a current revenue um, which would result in a shortfall. However, on the expenditure side, we believe that we have some room to save and we will make sure that we don't spend more than the revenue we collect and we can, we can um, create a corresponding $2.8 million expenditure savings. So we will not we, at this point, we do not plan to use any more of our fund balance this fiscal year. And then on the salary side, um, we are projecting spending, which is our biggest expenditure item. We are projecting to go over a little bit in salaries, and that's primarily because our budgeted attrition is just too low. The assumptions made for budget is that, I think, 15%, 18% attrition, and we're just seeing that we're not having people leave and we're able to hire people faster. So our actual attrition rate is lower. Next slide, please. So here are the revenue numbers. You can see the only projected variance from 
budget at this point is in that first line charge for services where we expect to only recover 44.2 million out of our um, $47 million budget. Next slide, please. And then on the expenditure side, we are projecting, we can confidently project salaries because those costs are known. We know how much people's salaries are. We know approximately when people will be, how long it will take to onboard them when we hire, who we choose to hire. So those, those numbers we're fairly confident in. And then the remainder of the savings we plugged into non-personnel services. We're fairly confident that we will experience savings in most expenditure categories, so material supplies, services of other departments. We've had expenditure savings there in prior years, and it looks like a lot of, especially work orders, are trending below uh, budget. So our uh, workers' comp budget, we have less people injured and less people receiving workers' comp payments than, than budgeted. Our utility payments are slightly less than budgeted. Our um, central shops, so our, our fuel and vehicle maintenance costs are a little bit less than budgeted. So we're confident that we will have savings all over, but for now, we're just projecting all of that savings in non-personnel services, which would be savings in IT. We'd probably have to, if we needed to, create $3.4 million of savings in non-personnel, we would delay major IT projects like uh, cloud migration, which is important for the city and for safety and resiliency, but it, if we had to save somewhere, it would be there and slowing down hiring. So at this point, we think we will come in as expected with no additional use of fund balance but we will continue to monitor, and then these projections will be updated again at nine months, so in quarter three of this fiscal year, and that will be, we'll have, at that point, three quarters of the year passed, so we'll have an even better idea of where we'll end up on expenditures and revenues. Next slide, please. So on the permit side, it's very sim a similar story to last month's report where we have more permits than at the same time this year. Uh, we've processed more permits. However, the valuation of those permits is lower. So we're doing more smaller projects, fewer bigger projects. Next slide, please. And again, to highlight, as I believe I have in the past, the larger buildings, the 100 to $200 million buildings, we haven't gotten any of those projects this year, and the two we received last year uh, more than explain the difference between this year and last year. So it's very difficult to project when those buildings will come in. A big project might have an entitlement, but then they might not actually apply for permits for many years. So it's difficult to project. Hopefully things pick up uh, in the second half of the year, but we will at this point continue to monitor. And that is it for my presentation. Last slide, please. I'd be happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Is there any public comment on the director's report items 6A through E? There is.
Okay. Again. My name is Jerry Dratner. Alteration of inspection records in the DBI permit tracking system, PTS, by DBI employees is likely illegal because it's illegal to alter public records. The first finding in the controller's September 2021 report addresses the lack of proper system controls to ensure complete data is entered into PTS and to prevent after the fact changes to recorded to DBI inspections. I'm gonna repeat that. Prevent after the fact changes to recorded DBI inspections. The BIC should ask Deputy City Attorney Kapla to issue a written opinion in the next 30 days whether DBI's after the fact changes to inspection records in PTS is an illegal alteration of public records. The alteration of DBI inspection records should stop immediately. I have one more comment and my comment is DBI presents performance data on how quickly they respond to complaints and how quickly they perform inspections. But they issue no performance data on execution. And the BIC should ask for execution performance data. For example, how long does it take to close an NOV? How many NOVs are open that are over a year old? Et cetera, et cetera, because you're only looking at the front end, you're not looking at execution, and DBI has a historic problem on execution. Thank you very much. Is there any additional public comment? Yes, I've seen the thing, same thing uh, as uh, Mr. Dradler, uh, that the focus of DBI is on a numbers game. It's typically, especially in code enforcement, when they say permit research, sometimes this goes on for years. But if they put down permit research for uh, uh, within the first two days, oh, we responded in 48 hours. And then as I spoke uh, in my deposition in the... Uh, Mission Local, Joe Ekanuba, uh, Dennis Richards case. Um, I talked about the FIPOs. Those were the files placed in Director O'Riordan's office for certain people. There's been no explanation from uh, Director O'Riordan. While I was in code enforcement, uh, there were a lot of uh, uh, people notified me and dropped off uh, papers of all these files placed in O'Riordan's office, sometimes for years. You know, unexplained. Look at 24 Ord Street. That I retain, I believe, the only uh, copy that was deleted from the DBI computer for a connected contractor. As uh, Mr. Dradler mentioned earlier, this was a Jerry Dradler project, or not Jerry Dradler, I'm sorry, um, uh, John Pollard project and Harold Howell project, where they claimed there was an existing basement. There was no existing uh, basement. Uh, and uh, that was all approved. And I believe I recall 2178 uh, uh, Pine Street, where there was merely a facade hanging in the air. Mm -hmm. Why wasn't that declared an illegal demolition? Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you. 
Any remote public comment? Okay, seeing none, item seven, discussion and possible action on the proposed budget of the Department of Building Inspection for fiscal years 2024-25 and 2025-2026. Hello again, Commissioners. Before we begin, I'd like to mention that this is the first of two budget meetings, and we're still at a very early stage of budget development. Not much has been put in. There's a lot moving and changing in January. Our budget submission is due in February. If we can go to the first slide, please. Here is a timeline, a budget schedule of all of the key milestone dates. So we are in our first of two required BIC budget meetings. The second meeting is being scheduled right now. It will be in early February. Then on February 21st, all departments submit a two-year budget proposal, all except for possibly MTA. But Departments submit two-year budget proposals to the mayor's budget office and to the controller. Then in March, March through April, the BIC will recommend proposed legislation to adopt the new fees as previously discussed in um, our, our fee study that has recently been completed. And also that legislation will address other things such as uh, adjusting the fees going forward and some other possible administrative processes. In February to, through June, after the department submits its budget proposal, the mayor's office takes over. It's their phase of the budget. They develop their proposal using the department's proposal as a base. They make their technical and policy changes. And then on May 1st, Last year it was June 1st, this year, and typically it's May 1st for enterprise departments, the mayor will submit her proposed budget to the Board of Supervisors. Then in the month of May, the Board of Supervisors will hold hearings and the department will present um, its, its proposed budget to the Board of Supervisors. The supervisors will then, um, with the help of the board's budget and legislative analyst, ask questions and propose changes, reductions, and addbacks to the department budget. Then in, July, in late July, the Board of Supervisors will adopt the final budget and budget trailing legislation. The mayor signs the budget in August, and then it is effective the next fiscal year. And fees this next coming year. Hopefully we, we hope to address this in the budget trailing legislation, but as last year, fees will be, new fees, should they be adjusted, will be effective 30 days from the date that the mayor signs the budget, so September. Next slide, please. Here is, I believe I've showed this slide before, but it's been updated. This is a financial history of the last 20 20 years of DBI. It shows revenues, expenditures, and available fund balance. The last few years include the department's tentative plans to close the structural deficit and um, bring revenues back in line with expenditures. 
One thing to note here is the dotted blue lines. Those have not been incorporated into budget yet, but given our six-month projections of three, $3 million revenue shortfall, um, it is likely that we will adjust the budget downwards by $3 million in each year, and that's what that blue line represents. So if we have to adjust revenue downward, then our fund balance would be lower, our revenue would be lower. However, we still, the tentative plan is still to increase fees slowly, uh, step increases, and achieve full cost recovery in fiscal year 27. So the question now is just how much fund balance, how much remaining fund balance will we have left at that time? So next slide. Our fund balance at the end of project, at the end of fiscal year 24 is projected to be about $36 million. Last year, year two of the budget, fiscal year 25, was balanced using $24.5 million of fund balance. However, um, at the direction of the mayor's office, we did, not we did not anticipate any fee increase at that time in the budget. So now we do anticipate increasing fees for fiscal year 25. That would generate an additional $9.9 .9 million of budget so we don't need 24.5, we only need $14.6 million to balance the budget for fiscal year 25. That would leave $21.2 million available at the end of fiscal year 25. In fiscal year 26, the plan now is to assume that we will increase fees again in fiscal year 26 and that we will um, reduce the, the use of fund balance by half. So the $14.6 million that we anticipate or that we will budget for fiscal year 25, we'll cut that in half to 7.3 in fiscal year 26. That would result in 13.9 remaining available fund balance at the end of fiscal year 26. However, as I previously noted, if we adjust revenues down by $3 million per year, then we'd need to use another $6 million of fund balance. So the conservative estimate right now is $7.9 million of fund balance remaining at the end of fiscal year 26. That may sound like a lot, but things change. The economy is unpredictable. There could be large swings up or down in demand for services. We don't know. and. We would like to keep that $7.9 million available fund balance and not commit to too much else and potentially get ourselves into trouble because at the end of the day, there will, it is very unlikely that there will be any general fund support to save the department. And if we are forced to reduce expenditures, that would likely affect staffing. So in order to avoid that, we are trying to maintain appropriate reserve levels. Next slide, please. This is just a, a table form of the previous page. Hopefully it's easy to follow. You can see from right to left and then down the, 
down the rows. So you start with 35.9 million. We expect to collect $62.8 million. When we, if we, if our fee increase is passed, that's an additional $9.9 .9 million. Our expenditure is 87.3, which would require us to balance that year to spend 14.6 of our available fund balance. So this is just what I had described on the previous page. Next slide, please. So as I had mentioned, it's very early in the budget development process. It's been less than a week since the previous fee study meeting. Very little has actually been done to the budget so far. Um, uh, many policy decisions have not been added yet. The only changes that I will show soon that have been made to the budget so far are adding in revenue estimates from the fee study, and these are just high-level plug numbers um, to show the effect of the, the fee study. Technical salary and benefit changes made by the controller. So uh, when retirement, they recalculate retirement rates and, and employee contributions and pension costs and, and how the retirement system is in investing our money affects what city costs are. So technical changes like that and then some union salary changes, all the technical things that affect labor. Controller makes those entries. And um, the, mayor, the mayor's 10% uh, general fund support reduction that has been applied citywide is in, is in these numbers so far. And one other item to mention is a technical thing, uh, continuing fund project cleanup. So we've been looking under couch cushions, trying to see is there any available funds anywhere. We've done a review of all continuing projects that the department has been engaged in, and there are many projects that have been completed with small balances available in them, and we are moving all of those balances into a contingency project, which we plan to use for PTS replacement. So. There, are, there were a number of projects that are now completed, closed, and we can take the balances from those and uh, put them towards our PTS replacement project. Next slide, please. So changes to come. Our department initiatives, we're still talking to staff, talking to managers, and meeting as an executive team to determine what are the department priorities for this next upcoming year? People are requesting additional staff, additional software, changes to cubicles, et cetera, et cetera. So all of the additional trainings they'd like for staff, so I'm collecting a wish list of all items, all initiatives from, from staff, and then we will put those together, sit down, determine how much money we have available, what we will put in our budget recommendation and what we just keep on the wish list for later when funds are available. Second is the CBO funding that has not been changed. We haven't touched it yet. So you will see that it's still in, it's still general fund funded. It's reduced by 10%. That decision and that actual change needs to be made. Um, and that will be addressed by the second 
budget meeting, but it is just in there as, as it was loaded. Um, work order changes from other departments, so other departments are determining their costs and how much they will pass on to us, how much we will be charged for rent, how much we will be charged for light, heat, and power, how much we will, how much uh, DHR expects that we will spend in workers' comp costs, how much city attorney expects to bill us in the next year. So all of those costs, it's difficult because to determine full costs, everybody needs to know what other department costs are. So that those worker order costs come in very late and in some cases not until the mayor's phase of the budget. So many of those services for other department costs will likely, they usually always go up. So we'll see the, the degree to which they increase and if they do, that would require additional fund balance, additional use of fund balance to cover, but we don't expect it to be too significant. Interest as calculated by the controller, so all of the fund balance that we have sitting in a bank account earns interest. The city invests it in a pool with all its cash and they will tell us how they think that they will do. I think last year they did better than expected and we had a few hundred thousand dollars extra, which was good news, but you never know with that and controllers will let us know what that amount is. And lastly, uh, countywide cost allocation. So this is all the city central services. So the board of supervisors, the city administrator, uh, the controller's office, all of those costs get allocated out to departments and controller's office will let us know what that is. That's very difficult to project again. But if it does go up, it likely won't be terribly significant. Next slide. So here is what is in the budget system as of now. This, this includes all the changes that I previously mentioned. I think we should go down um, well, first I'll explain what the columns are and then we can go down the rows. So the first column, that fiscal year 23-24 adopted budget, this is our current year budget. This was approved last year as year one and this is the budget that we are currently operating with this fiscal year. The third column, the fiscal year 24-25 original budget, that was what was approved as year two last year. So that's what the Board of Supervisors, the Mayor, that's what went before the BIC. And then you can see between those two, the changes from fiscal year 24 to 25. The fifth column, the fiscal year 24-25 department proposed budget, that is what will be submitted on February 21st as the department's budget proposal. You can see the changes from what was approved last year minimal salary and benefits, that's controller's technical stuff. The 300,000 uh, non-personnel and 210,000 city grant program, that was the mayor's 10% general fund cut. The project carry forward cleanup that I had mentioned, that's just moving old surplus balances to PTS project. And then on the revenue side, 
you can see the $4.4 million in licenses and $5.6 million charged for services. That is our fee study $9.9 million increase. Um, the general fund transfer in was reduced. That's the revenue side of the general fund cut, so 510000 reduction. And then because our revenues are increasing, our use of fund balance can go down from 24.5 to $14.6 million. Then in year two of the budget, the only things that are changing, the very last column, the fiscal year 25-26, that's year two of our proposed budget that we will submit in on February 21st, the $2 million in salaries and 700,000 in benefits, those are the MOU salary uh, cost of living increases that all staff get, those aren't discretionary. Everything else is projected the same for now, but we'll see what department initiatives come in. And then um, the cleanup only happens in fiscal year 25, not in 26, so that's zero. And then on the revenue side, we're tentative, tentatively projecting another $9.9 .9 million revenue increase from a fee increase in fiscal year 26. And that, along with the increased cost in salary and benefits, would result in a reduction in use of fund balance of $7.3 million. Next slide, please. And the labor budget, I'm showing it here. Uh, for reference, but no changes have been made here. I expect minimal changes to be made to the labor budget. There was a massive cleanup, technical cleanup last year, and some right-sizing of positions, but there may be a few changes, but nothing has been loaded so far. We may just reassign positions from one department to another at no cost. Some positions may be substituted uh, to reflect changing needs, some up, some down, but the final labor budget will likely look substantially similar to this. And one note is the differences in FTE between years is due to a technical calculation. Attrition is loaded by controller's office and um, the number of FTE that represents is a negative number and it's calculated by the system. I don't know exactly how it works, but it's very slightly, it changes year to year. So. There's not fewer positions from 24 to 25 to 26. It's just a, a, a calculated attrition from controller's office. So that is the budget presentation and I'd be happy to answer any questions. Uh, thank you, is there any public comment first on, on the budget? Hi, my name is Becky Hom. I'm the Contracts and Services Director at Galzahusta Just Cause. Um, we are one of the CEOP CBOs. So I um, just want to say that there needs to be a careful consideration of the um, vital impact of community services with, and the potential contradictions between revenue generations and budget cuts. Um, so I just wanted to, one of the things I want to say is the last meeting staff stated we only do outreach and education. 
wanted to point out that our CAP programs, our SRO um, collaboratives, we also counsel and support tenants with getting their units um, or buildings up to code by yeah, counseling, letting them know their rights, helping folks write letters to their landlord, communicate with their landlord. Um, and I also really can't emphasize enough how important education is. We have all these important housing code, we have all these laws. As you all know, like um, enforcement, without enforcement, it doesn't do anything. And so a lot of the work we do is supporting tenants, um, and also, you know, working with the staff at DBI too, as appropriate. But wanted to really emphasize that our work is vitally important. Um, we don't replace the staff, and they also don't replace us. So, let's see. Um, yeah, wanted to really make sure that we increase the revenue. We talked. I was here last week to talk about the fees. Those um, needing to increase the fees so that we really can make sure that the central services are funded by this department so that general fund money is not continued to be used, take away from other department um, amounts. And also wanted to, yeah, I wanted to point out, you know, these fees have historically funded the work done by CBOs, have funded this important um, work. And I also really have a concern about the proposed reduction of $210,000 to the CBO budget for essential services um, when there's an you know, anticipated, anticipated increase in revenue from the adjustments. Um, I, you know, I see that there was a 10% uh, directive, decrease directive from the mayor, but I also noticed that, you know, that isn't put into the budget across the board as 10% cuts. And yeah, I just wanted to really have the budget consider what, you know, fits the, needs of the department, but also what is equitable for the community. Thank you. Is there any additional public comment in person? Um, I believe there was someone remotely. There, there are public comment remote. Okay, caller, you're unmuted. Yeah, good afternoon, commissioners. Uh, my name is Maria Samudio. I'm the interim executive director at Housing Rights Community of San Francisco. We're an active CIOP organization. Um, and I am here to really echo a lot of what my colleague Becky has just said to you all in person. Um, I want to reemphasize that uh, uh, last week when, when we were also here, um, the CEOP program and what our organizations do was identified as just outreach. We don't just do outreach. We are a code enforcement program as well. And using all of the tools that my colleague Becky just highlighted, we also do support in the necessary uh, implementation of code enforcement without there being, uh, without the enforcement arm, our codes, um, all of the codes that we fight so hard for here in San Francisco are not able to be implemented. And that is one of the things that our programs do. Um, so I wanted to note that um, with the anticipation of a revenue increase amounting to 9.9 .9 million through the perspective, through the proposed fee increases, um, it, it, it raises the crucial question of why those reserve funds um, won't, the, the, the proposal is to not utilize those funds. Um, I understand that the department wants to be in alignment with a 10% reduction in general fund obligations from the mayor. Um, and so there is, there is revenue 
generated that can be allocated to bridge that gap, and I think we should do so. Um, this approach both aligns with the mayor's directive, but also ensures that um, resources aren't cut, and that as we had mentioned last week when we were here speaking, we're not um, burdening uh, general fund resources with um, uh, costs that could be covered by this um, enterprise department's own resources. I also want to clarify um, that these revenues traditionally have been allocated to fund the, the CBOs, and so historically, the fees go to CBO funding, and that is uh, a crucially important aspect of these proposed changes. Um, it sets too dangerous of a precedent to move away from continuing to have the fees, the revenue fees, support the CBO funding. They're, they were linked for a reason. They should remain linked. Um, and then one particular concern that arises is uh, this anticipated cut, right? So if there is a potential increase from the fee, in, uh, from the fee increases, um, there, the, the targeted, that aligns with the targeted reduction in general funds, we should use that to not cut the CBO budget by $210,000. Um, that is counterintuitive. We should use the additional revenue to simultaneously bridge the gap and maintain essential services. So I urge this committee to consider um, using the revenue from the fees as well as um, this, uh, the, yeah, use revenue from the fees to 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 keep the CBO budgets whole um, because oh, the number caller, you, if you can wrap up your comment is an, I will thank you so much. The number we're looking at here is now a significant reduction from the increase that we actually asked for last week. Thank you. Okay, and the next next public comment person. Hi there, um, Serena Calhoun again, I'm a local architect. I just, it's interesting for me to, to hear the budget, but I look at it from a slightly different perspective, which is the fees my clients are paying for their improvements. Um, I recently had a client with a rent control department come vacant. We did a renovation that converted the three bedroom, one bathroom into a four bedroom, three bath, two and a half bathroom. And, the, and we did a tiny in, like, infill of a light well, a three foot by three foot light well. The permit fees were $26,000 for that unit renovation. And 10,000 of that fee was for just the planning fee for spending 20 minutes at the counter on uh, this little light well infill. So I do wanna make sure that when we're looking at raising fees for permits, that we're considering you know, the real impacts to the cost of housing, the cost of uh, improvements and, and making it really difficult for people to improve their properties. That's it, thank you. Okay, thank you. That's the end of the um, public comment. Okay, yeah. Interim President Alexander Toot. Do my commissioners have any questions or any comments on the budget? I do. Commissioner uh, Williams. Sorry. So, uh, your presentation, uh, you, when you were discussing the fees and the fee study. Uh, Mike, Commissioner? Yes. Okay. Uh, so, uh, there was reference to the plan being uh, a phase-in to, to come to full cost. Uh, this plan, is, is that, uh, like I don't recall the, the board agreeing or the, this commission agreeing to that. Is, is that still, is that just the proposed uh, plan for these fees based upon 
the fee study, or is that, uh, I mean, that isn't concrete yet, correct? No, it is absolutely not concrete. The fee study just says, this is the maximum you can charge. These are the fees, this is the cost, this is your cost to provide service. If you charge this, then you will recover your costs. And then we are charging less than that mm -hmm. to prevent huge significant increases and in, in, uh, significant impacts on, on customers. Um, the legislation, the budget this year, remember that year two becomes year of a budget, becomes year one next year, will be revisited. Um, I feel it's important to put a placeholder there to make sure that the expectation is clear that there will be some sort of increase next year. Um, again, the options are reduce expenditures or raise revenues, and the department is 95% non-discretionary spending, most of that labor, so reducing expenditures is would be very serious um, and would impact service levels. Uh, but no, the legislation to increase fees, the budget trailing legislation will only be, will, will say the building code, fee each the fee is this, and then it will be this. So it will go up to the fiscal year 25 amount. 26, there would have to be either another legislation to increase fees again, or we would have to have some, some sort of mechanism to increase it again next year. Okay, um, a few more questions perhaps. Uh, the fee study, and uh, I think intuitively, if we're charging less than what it costs to provide a service, and I, this is addressed in the fee study, then uh, we're providing a subsidy to those customers that we are undercharging for the services. So, and this, this uh, you mentioned our options. So there are policy reasons why we should not want to go to full cost uh, right away because of the sticker shock from that. Uh, but do we have an option other than this department providing that subsidy uh, within the larger city budget for the general fund from the city or from other so from some other source to pro to uh, effectuate that policy decision uh, to so it, are we just limited to this department being responsible to provide that subsidy or if, if that's a concern for uh, if that's a legitimate policy reason could the board of supervisors or the mayor's office provide that subsidy, subsidy instead of this department Absolutely, the general fund could subsidize. It's up to the mayor's office and the controller's office. They control what goes into the budget and they, they would make that policy decision. So if that's an option, that would be fantastic and that wouldn't help us out greatly if, <laughs> yeah. So it's really a question for them and given the difficulties that the city as a whole is facing and the, the dire budget meetings that the in presentations that mayor's office have have given they basically said don't don't expect the general fund to swoop in and save you to all departments not just us but i think there are many difficult conversations being had in similar settings right. across other departments but yeah but if uh, if this department doesn't come to full cost recovery soon then we will need saving because yes yes so yeah uh, okay. Uh, well, thank you.
Any other questions before I go? Um, I want to do my disclosure, which is that I formerly worked for one of the organizations that is currently and was previously funded by the city grants program. Um, and I maintain friendships and personal relationships with people who both work for there and receive those services. Um, but we are not talking about any particular organization here. We're talking about a line item, not future allocation, not current allocation, just a line item in the budget. Um, so I have a, I have two questions. And one is when we discuss at the fee study, uh, finalizing where we will land on the on on the fees is that something that's before us today or is that going to happen at the next budget meeting it sounded like you said the next special budget meeting the next budget meeting will be when you review and approve the department's budget submission to the mayor's office so today is just discussion okay so it says action item on the agenda but it's just informational I apologize if it says action item, it should just be discussion. That's what I thought we were doing, so I'm much relieved. Okay, good. <laughs> um, and then, so that's also true with the, what I heard you say was a city grant program, um, which is line items on the proposed budget. This is as is in the, as if it was to be funded through the general fund, but any discussion about moving it back would happen through action at the next budget meeting is that my understanding I believe so yes we will make uh, we will enter everything that we plan to propose in our department budget submission and then bring that to you and then you would review and determine whether or not to approve or send that with a recommendation to the mayor's office okay fantastic thank you um, I don't have any other questions except that I really like the addition of the project carry forwards and the programmatic projects. I understand what that means from an internal, very internal city perspective. Um, and I think that's very good cleanup. And you said that's for the PTS, that's, that's for the perfect tracking system. That's for an expansion or the new, a new system? A new system and we have a project manager starting next week. This is likely to be a multi-year long project that involves other city departments, the permit center, and will profoundly potentially impact DBI's business, its workflows, how it charges, the fee schedules themselves may radically change, we may charge for different things. Um, so the PTS project is, is really a big deal and there is currently $7 million set aside for it that's nowhere near enough. This will be another 1.7 added uh, the last, I think 10 years ago, a PTS replacement project was attempted that cost $12 million and fell apart, ended in lawsuits, no new system. The Permit Center commissioned a consultant to do a report and they estimated a new system could cost as much as $25 million. We need to determine how much the general fund will kick in money for that project, they have to. Other general fund departments like DPW, DPH, Rec Park, uh, PUC, et cetera, et cetera, they planning, they all will use this new system so they will pay a portion of the upfront cost and then we will also need to determine how to recover on ongoing costs, our, our MIS team, their maintenance costs, their salaries. So we may charge a licensing, a license fee, so planning, you have 
25 users of this system, we're going to charge you $1,000 per person per year, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so all of that has yet to be determined, but it, I would like to stress how big of a project that is and how, how much it will impact. Thank you. I don't have any more questions. Anybody else? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, uh, commissioners. Uh, I guess that's clarified. This item is just f is for discussion at this meeting, and for the next uh, the special budget meeting, there will be uh, action at the next public hearing. It will be a special public hearing. Okay. Okay. On we're on to item eight, commissioners' questions and matters. 8A, inquiries to staff. At this time, commissioners may make inquiries to staff regarding various documents, policies, practices, and procedures which are of interest to the commission. And 8B, future meeting and agendas. At this time, the commission may discuss and take action to set the date of a special meeting and or determine those items that could be placed on the agenda of the next meeting and other future meetings of the Building Inspection Commission. Um, are there any uh, inquiries or uh, agenda items for the next meeting? Madam Secretary, were you going to um, announce the special meeting for the? Um, I, I, I will. Um, I was, we, we, we're going to discuss that. Okay. Uh, so I, I just read A and B together, but we can do the, the meeting first. Uh, the next regular meeting is going to be on uh, February 21st. And the, the special meetings, there were two um, dates that I guess the majority of the commissioners responded. Um, one was February 7th at 9.30, and the other one was February 13th at 9.30. The 7th is a Wednesday, um, and I believe Commissioner uh, Chavez is not available that day. The 13th is a Tuesday, and Commissioner Newman is not available on that date. So, but that's the... That's the, the closest that I could get <laughs> to okay. people. So it's either going to be on Wednesday the 7th or Tuesday the 13th. That's, and that's the closest we can get. I know, right? Who wants to choose? <laughs> like, yeah, I leave it to you, Commissioner. <laughs> Allow me to choose before you. Okay, so. Um, um, I, I wanted to propose that we move future meetings to 9.30 a.m. instead of 9 a.m. for regular um as our regular agenda. I don't know how others feel about that, but that could be, can we, is that would suggestion for a possible future action or? Um, yes, we could, we could agendize that for the next meeting. Is that correct, city attorney? If we wanted to, to change, officially change the time, the start time. Uh, would this be for AAB as well? Um, it would be, well, this would be for okay. the building inspection commission and then we'd have to do it separately for AAB. Okay. Yeah. Okay. He's the president yeah. of the AAB. So. Yes, we can, um, <laughs> we can agendize this, and uh, we'll make, have to make that a point to, to put the, the, this as an action item on both agenda. Okay. okay. So. What, are, what, are, what are we looking at me for? I do. <laughs> <laughs> so are we, um, is there any consensus as far as the, the next special budget meeting or as, as to whether the 7th or the 13th would be best, the Wednesday or the Tuesday? No. Okay, so we'll, I'll have to talk with you all offline. We'll need to confirm by the end of tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> so I'll, I'll talk to everyone offline. 
Okay, and um, if there, there are no other future items, okay, you can contact me as usual. Okay, uh, so that's the end of that item. Is there any public comment on the item, item eight? Um, seeing none, item nine is review and approval of the minutes of the regular meeting of December 13th, 2023. Second. Okay, so there was a motion by Commissioner Shaddix, and who, who did the second? And Commissioner, uh, Commissioner Alexander Toot. The second, is there any public comment on the minutes? Okay, seeing none, are all commissioners in favor? Aye. Aye. Are any opposed? Okay, thank you. Then the minutes were approved. Our next item is item 10, discussion and possible action regarding Director O'Riordan's performance evaluation. 10A is public comment on all matters pertaining to the closed session. Is there uh, any public comment pertaining to the closed session? Is there any remote? Is there any remote? And just for the record, there's no remote public comment. Is there a person going to come forward? Oh, okay. Overhead, please. Okay. It, it will show. And this comment is just per pertaining to the director's performance evaluation. That's the subject that you should be addressing. That will be what I'll be addressing. Oh. I've spoken to others. Uh, um, in, inspectors in the Department of Building Inspection, and, and they are very disappointed as to the progress that has been made, uh, or alleged progress. Uh, as I spoke earlier, the hiring and promoting remain the same, kind of internal family and friends for the new hires, uh, appears to be controlled by the city family. If you just look at the uh, DBI contact directory, um, you can see the names repeating. And uh, a lot of family stuff. Take Deputy Director Matt Green has had, uh, by my count, six family members uh, employed by DBI, including the last person who uh, called me just hours before he committed suicide to say goodbye. Um, there have been three suicides out of approximately 30 BID inspectors in less than five years. All the persons who committed suicides complained. If you could watch your comments, sir, that has nothing to do with the director's performance evaluation. You can go ahead and continue, and I'll allow you more time. Uh, regarding the hiring process, how come the hiring isn't like when Director O'Riordan and myself were hired, where there are three uh, chiefs and directors from outside divisions uh, or uh, jurisdictions did the hiring process, did the uh, interviews? It was not internal like it is. I think they should revert this back so it uh, helps uh, eliminate the um, insider, what I per uh, perceive as insider hiring. So um, will the, uh, they change back and revert to the uh, hiring? Sir, uh, we're going to have to conclude your comment if, you, if you're not addressing Thank you. this. Thank you. just has to be on the, the agenda item, the agenda subject. Is there any additional public comment? Okay, I'm seeing none. Item B, possible actions to convene a closed session. Is there a motion to convene a closed session? So moved. Is there a second? Second. 
Um, um, we'll do a roll call vote on the motion. Interim President Alexander Toot. Yes. Commissioner Chavez. Yes. Commissioner Newman. Yes. Commissioner Shaddix. Yes. Commissioner Summer. Yes. Commissioner Williams. Yes. Okay, the motion carries unanimously. We are now in closed session. It is 1.02 p.m. TV, San Francisco Government Television.
you that the time is 1.09 p.m. And this is the Building Inspection Commission. Is, is there a motion uh, to reconvene in open session? So moved. And is there a second? Second. And I'll, are all commissioners in favor to reconvene this meeting in open session? Aye. Aye. Okay. And is there any comment by Commissioner Interim President Alexander Toot? Um, yes, yeah, so we have um, decided based on scheduling needs to uh, table the, uh, the item until March, or we will continue it until the March regular meeting. Okay, thank you. No. Okay, thank you. So this item uh, will be continued to the March uh, regular Building Inspection Commission meeting. And so our next item is 11, adjournment. Is there a motion to adjourn? So moved. There's a second? Second. Okay, are all commissioners in favor? Aye. Aye. Okay, um, no public comment. Um, <laughs> we are now adjourned. It is 1.10 p.m.